to the Self and Society podcast, exploring what it means to flourish as an individual and a community. This is your host, Ari Armstrong, music by Jordan Smith, cjsclassical.com. Please join Self and Society at Substack. Our guest today is Sheriff Bill Masters of Telluride, San Miguel County, Colorado. Masters is the longest serving sheriff in Colorado history, having taken over the position in 1980. Masters also is the author of the 2001 book, Drug War Addiction, Notes from the Front Lines of America's Number One Policy Disaster. I, along with Richard Don Lamping, helped to edit that book. By way of background, Colorado legalized marijuana for medicinal purposes in 2000 and for recreational use in 2012. So how are you doing, Bill? Good to talk to you again. It's always a pleasure, Ari. Thank so, you so much for your, your work on that book. Uh, yeah. Um, it's, that was a fun project many years ago, and I, you know, in its own small way, it might have changed some people's minds. Yeah, I think so. I hate, I hate to break it to you up front, though, but you are not the longest-serving sheriff in U.S. history. I oh, looked this up. Right? That goes to Dwight E. Radcliffe of Pickaway County, Ohio. He served from 1965 to 2013. So you're going to have to run a couple more times to catch up with him. Jeez. I don't know so, if I got it in me or not. Well, you've, I think you've done your share for uh, King and Country at this point. How did you get past the term limits there? And what's it been like being sheriff for this long? How do you keep the position fresh and current? I often tell people that I remember my first day of sher as sheriff and, and most of today. And, and the rest of it's just been a big blur. So it's been a, a long time. We've seen a lot of changes in Telluride and San Miguel County and in the, 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 uh, uh, business of policing uh, itself, but there still there are some uh, some fundamental rules that, that ha have not changed. Uh, I had a chance to be in um, in London uh, earlier this year, and and uh, I had an old Bobby uh, who who used to uh, work guarding the Queen, help guard the Queen, um, show me around downtown London, and uh, we we went into uh, Westminster Abbey and there was the statute of Sir Robert Peel, the founder of the Metropolitan Police Department. And the name Bobby comes from Robert Peel. And they have a statue of him there. And, and I still have Robert Peel's principles uh, posted in my office. So there's been a lot of changes, but also from those times, there's still some things that are fundamentally true uh, about uh, peacekeeping. Uh, I never use the term law enforcement. It's ridiculous. 30,000 laws in the state of Colorado, 400, over 400 traffic violations. Next time you get behind the wheel of a car, think about that. Think of what they could possibly be. And um, so we don't enforce the law because there's just way too many of them. Best we can do is, is try to preserve a semblance of the peace. And um, that's what we try to do here. And if you call yourself a peace officer, um, as opposed to a law enforcement officer, you, you, you look at things differently. And, and so that's what I've done to try to make it through all those, all those years. And I have to admit, I didn't start out that way. I, I, as I've shared with you in the past, I started out thinking the law is the law, and I saw what I saw, as, a, um, as the witch would say. And um, uh, the, rea the reality is the uh, laws are... are just some kind of weird guideline for, for human behavior and, and uh, uh, we can't possibly enforce all of them. So uh, we try to do the best that we can using com good common sense. And really most police officers out on the street 
peace officers, I should say, do the same thing. So what troubles your county these days? I see you have a livestock rustler sign on your door. A lot of of search results seem to be about tourists dying up in the mountains, taking a fall off a cliff or something. Yeah, that that sign was was one from the 1980s, early 80s. And and, uh, I I, I have that sign. A friend of mine gave me a sign the other day, uh, the same sign. It's a metal sign. And we, we had a number of them posted throughout the county in the 80s, but he found one in a flea market and, and it, it was all rusted and everything. And uh, he bought that for me and, and gave it to me. It's on the side of my garage in, in Telluride. But uh, it, it was uh, kind of a fun sign at the time because we were concerned about livestock rustling and we still are to a degree, but uh, that's gotten a little bit more sophisticated in, in the uh, the way animals are tagged and, and processed, et cetera. So it doesn't happen to the d- degree as it, as it used to. Um, you know, there's a lot of issues in, in San Miguel County, like there is every place else, probably with a lot less frequency. You know, we've had our, our occasional homicide cases. We've had um, a, um, the same kind of things that happen every place else in the world happen here. You know, uh, with humans and, and their behavior, but just with the very, not the frequencies you find in, in cities, et cetera. Uh, most of our people are really, uh, are, are pretty decent people uh, as are most of our visitors. Uh, we're really fortunate in that way. We also though, being a sheriff, I'm responsible for the search and rescue, for the, the corrections or the jail. Uh, and the uh, court security, civil process, and all the court process, and uh, also wildfire control in in the county to manage that wildfire control. So um, that takes a a lot of work these days. We're very concerned about our wildfires, as we've noticed throughout the state, even in January in Boulder, this terrible incident that that occurred. that could occur anywhere in the state at any time. All you need is, is some dry vegetation and some wind source and an ignition source. And, and um, we could have a lot of homes destroyed and a lot of people killed. And we're really fortunate that, that it turned out so well in that Boulder event as far as what could have happened if it was a few hours later and people were at home and, and you couldn't... Uh, couldn't get notified in time, something along those lines, couldn't evacuate in time. So that's a big concern of ours, something that, that we really, really work on to try to figure out how we're going to get out of this area if we did have a big fire like that. How are we going to communicate with our visitors who are here? Because sometimes the visitors are going to be um, several times our permanent population. Uh, during a festival, we might have 20,000 people in the Telluride Valley that normally has a, a permanent population of maybe 4,000 people. So uh, how do we communicate with these people? How do we get them out of that uh, uh, particular environment, out of danger um, if a wildfire was threatening? So that's, a, that's certainly a big uh, issue that we deal with here. We've had a 30,000 acre fire, didn't lose any structures, but that was mainly by the grace of God. And, um, uh, so anyway, I think we're going to be on fire, and, well, and and every sheriff in the state is worried about that. 
I live in Westminster, so I could see that Superior Louisville fire across on, across the horizon through the valley. So it wasn't it never put me in evacuation or pre-evacuation, but you know, I could we could see the flames out of my back wall window facing north. Oh. So yeah, that was that was quite. I think it got over a thousand residences plus some commercial structures. Yeah, terrible. How was the? How did you fare through the pandemic? Did you get it early on? How did that affect your work and life in the uh, San Miguel Valley? You know, it still does. We we have uh, uh, two of our correctional officers out on uh, COVID today, uh, so uh, you know we still know that uh, COVID is out there. But that was uh, that was obviously one of our biggest challenges ever. Uh, I was on the uh, part of the Unified Command in dealing with the early outbreak and and the shutdowns and and, and try to figure out. Uh, the proper thing to do for our county and uh it was it was very difficult uh, that was a uh, real challenge and it continues to be one to this day uh, i i am uh, fortunate enough that i never caught COVID, and and uh, um myself i've you know got all i'm over 70 now so i i got uh, two boosters and the original two and i'm i'm blessed that i haven't haven't had it yet but I use that as yet. So uh, it was a tough time for our, for our county, and and a lot of um, a lot of stress to people, a lot of mental illness, and um, you know certainly another big factor that we've been trying to change in in, um, in our agency anyway to to eliminate the people that are are mentally ill from our, our facility. Our, our, and and try to get them in some other um, program other than being in jail. And we certainly used to do that in Colorado when I started my career. People who who were in crisis were uh, had a had a place to go. We had the state hospital, and I I think we had a perfect storm of both liberal and conservative politics coming together. The conservatives not wanting to pay for the state hospital anymore and taking care of these people, and and of course the liberals watching one flew over the cuckoo's nest and deciding to uh to get all these people out of the the institutions because they were being uh, supposedly mistreated but really the, the real mistreatment is, is putting all these people out on the street uh and having the, them have to fend for themselves when they're completely insane and and uh we we see the, the terrible homeless camps and the the assaults, the sexual assaults, the, the terrible living conditions that these people are forced to endure because uh, they're uh, they're mentally ill or they're in crisis, and uh, that that's a real uh, a real um, mark on on our uh, society the way we treat people who are in crisis or who are addicted to drugs or alcohol, et cetera. And it's it's uh, just to have them set up in these homeless camps is is a black mark on our society. Yeah, I don't know what the answer is to that. That's a tough, that's a tough one. And I, I went into Denver recently and saw one of these larger homeless camps in northern part of downtown. And clearly, you know, this is not an ideal place to be living. I don't know if the answer is uh, decentralized treatment facilities where people can go, or I don't know exactly, but obviously we've not found the solution yet. Yeah, and, and you know, some of the people in the homeless camps are down on their luck, and they're, they're a different group. But, but uh, vast, vast numbers of them are, are people that are suffering from, 
are in mental health crisis or, or are uh, suffering from addiction. And, and uh, it's really hard to deal with them because uh, uh, many of them don't don't want to be placed in 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 places where where their behavior is controlled. And and uh, but the, the reality is we're we're doing them a disfavor by treating them like this way. And, and uh, yeah, it's, I think it's terrible. Well, you mentioned politics. Back in the day, we were both libertarians for a while. Now you're a Democrat and I'm a Republican. So I wanted to ask you how you see the parties these days. And a news bit, I noticed that one Telluride man was charged for his role in the January 6th, 2021 Capitol invasion. So how do you see where the parties are headed and how they've evolved in the last couple of decades since we were working together on that book. Yeah, I, I, I see a, a big change and in, in certainly in the, in the way that the two parties re, relate to each other. And, and that, that, that's really a, a shame. It, it seems like we used to have, have some really good politicians in Colorado, Senator Dan Noble, who was from, from our county was a Republican um, uh, senator, state senator, and was known for his abilities to to work together with Democrats to solve the problems of our state. And um, I think he was the president of the Senate for a while. But anyway, he he was a uh, he was a, a real example to me of of uh, being able to work work together with uh, both parties and we've lost that we've lost that to a terrible degree and I, I'm not I'm not going to blame one party or the other everybody wants to do that it's Republicans faults or Democrats faults both of our faults for for not being able to sit down and come together to solve the problems and the people really want that I, I, I think the the radical or reactionary sides of both both parties uh, are the ones that uh, end up getting their candidates uh, chosen in the primary process or in, in the different uh, ways that we, that we choose our candidates. And um, that leaves behind the, the moderates that, that might have uh, some really good ideas on working together to um, solve the problems facing us. And, and we don't have that anymore. It's, it's all about rhetoric and, and, uh, um, and, seeing how nasty you can be to each other. And, and uh, that's just, uh, I don't want any part of that. Uh, I'm, I'm not that kind of kind of Democrat. I wasn't that kind of Republican. I wasn't that kind of Libertarian. I, I, it seems like you, we all have to uh, work together. And if you want to be, um, you know, mean and cruel and, and a smart ass uh, out there to, to the other people who are, who have taken their, time to, to serve in our legislator, legislative branches, um, you know, to hell with you. I, 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 don't, I don't like you and I, I don't want you to, to represent us anymore if, if all you have is meanness and, and smart ass comments. Well, uh, I should notice that you are up for re-election yourself this fall during the big election. And so that would put you up for another four years as sheriff. So one, one thing I've observed is since I was in the Libertarian Party, I think parts of the Libertarian Party, even, even then, but since then especially, have really taken a dark turn with even 
ironically, strangely, libertarians coming out as anti-immigrant and promoting racist commentary that kind of, in some in some elements. But now, of course, the Republican aspects of the Republican Party have just gone have just gone Looney Tunes. Um, and I, the reason I'm a Republican is because back in 2016, I was going to put put in whatever effort I could to try to keep Donald Trump from winning the primary. And obviously, I was unsuccessful, even though Colorado did not go for Trump back then. Um, so I'm officially a Republican, but I'm not too happy with where much of the Republican Party is headed. We have obviously better representatives and worse ones. Um, so I don't know how to, I wish that there were more blue dog Democrats, more level-headed Democrats in the mix along the lines of you and the model that you've laid out. Well, I, 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 I consider myself a blue dog Democrat and, and you know, that's really unpopular with, the, with the, uh, some of the progressive wings of the Democratic Party. They don't like, they don't like blue dogs. And, and uh, I, I'm, I'm clearly one. And, and so I, I, at times I'm not real popular in, in, in the Democratic Party either, but uh, I, I'm, uh, I, I, I wish we, we had something uh, where people could, could, uh, could come together on and, 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 and stop this, uh, this divide because uh, it, it, it's definitely hurting our country. And um, I, I agree with you, some of those things with the, with the um, Republican Party being seemingly anti-immigrant. And uh, I'm pro-immigrant. I, I, I like immigrants. And, and I, I think uh, uh, so many of them have contributed so much to our country. And, and that first generation of people that come and work hard uh, while, while coming to the United States. And I happened to attend a, a, a swearing in of new immigrants a few years back um, when my wife became a, a U.S. citizen. She was born in, in Newfoundland. Um, so she's almost a Canadian, as they say up there. Um, the, uh, uh, but it was uh, hundreds upon hundreds of people uh, being sworn in as new American citizens. It was a, a really dynamic, fun, fun group from all over the world, every possible country, every possible race. It was a, it was a great day, and and uh, we need to uh, we need to continue that. Uh, that that's the magic of our country, and uh, that's why you know other countries that aren't like that. You take China, who doesn't doesn't don't like immigrants, don't like people from from different countries. And, uh, and they're losing population like crazy. They say that by the end of this century, they're going to have a third of their population that they have now. And that, that's terrible for a country. That, that means economic disaster for that country. And, and you just can't have that. You're gonna, we're going to have to have immigrants and, and smart immigrants, immigrants well-educated, and immigrants uh, that are also uh, hard workers. And, and we have a lot of them that that uh, have come here over the years. But that being said, we also need a, a, a legal system uh, and the, the legal system um, should come as a, as a, a worker program of some, some time and uh, some kind. And when that happens, um, then people can go back and forth across the border and have the proper documentation and hopefully can be deported if they commit crimes or, or uh, we determine that workers 
uh, are no longer needed because of our economy or something. And we used to do it that way. And for some reason, uh, that, that's a very limited program now. I wanted to switch to drug war because that's what we worked on. And you started your book back in, 20, in 2001 saying the so-called war on drugs is itself an addiction. But I'm not sure exactly how you've, your views have evolved on this issue. A few years ago, Colorado Public Radio wrote that you stepped back from that to some, in some ways, but still believe in, quote, providing addicts mental health instead of criminal prosecution. So how do you think about that issue generally these days? Uh, I, um, I'm not sure how, how far I've stepped back from it, but, but um, we, we certainly have, have the issues in, in our face now that, uh, on, that some people uh, fail to recognize. People still say oh, there's good drugs and bad drugs, and uh, there aren't. They're, they're, you know, they're inanimate objects, and it, it depends on on how they're used. Unfortunately, you know, peacekeeping ha has a role in that. Uh, you know, sometimes it's aberrant behavior, but people should be judged by their aberrant behavior, not by what drug or blaming it on, on, on a particular drug. Uh, that's, that's unacceptable in my mind. But I'm not cer certain that just being a drug addict, using drugs should be a crime. I, I still believe that. And I think there's, there's, um, uh, it has never worked. We have never solved uh, or arrested our way out of a drug uh, wave. And I, I call these things go, tend to go in waves. You got a crack wave, you got a cocaine wave, you got fentanyl wave, and then, then a meth wave, and then it all repeats itself again. But we've never been able to stop it by arresting our way out of it. And um, partially our fault, uh, uh, the peacekeeping agencies, you know, raised their hand. We can solve that. We can arrest our way out of it. We we arrest enough people, they'll they'll stop using these drugs. That's that doesn't work. And and anybody who says it does is is just not uh, dealing in reality. It doesn't work. You cannot stop drug use in a free society by resting your way out of it. And um, we are a free society, and I think one of the one of the rights should be that you, your body is yours, and you decide what substances uh, go into it. And um, I think that is a I think it's a fundamental human right. It seems like everybody says my body, my choice, when it's their pet issue, but when it's your body, I'm not sure if it should be your choice. It's just my body, my choice. Yeah. Well, once again, we if we stressed on fine take whatever you want but you're you've got to be responsible we're going to hold you responsible for your behavior and um i think that would be a better approach approach to do with it from the very beginning of of uh, of education uh, of your uh, of children you, know, you you should start educating them that what's a good thing to take, what's a bad thing to take, you know, what's a good thing to eat, what's a bad thing to eat. And, and we, we try to, to teach our children those kinds of things, but to go and, and say, well, you know what, that's really the policeman's job to tell you what to do, take and not take. And, and um, that's a mistake. And that, do, that just flat doesn't work. We, we prove it every day. And, and now we have this terrible 
fentanyl problem. And um, you know, the, I, I think uh, the Chinese, the most controlled society on the planet, you know, is turning a blind eye to at least, uh, if not encouraging, uh, the manufacturing of this drug and the importation to Mexico, and then then it gets across the border, uh, and uh, and people are using it. Well, <clears throat> fentanyl is a is a unique substance because enough to to, as I understand it, give every person in the United States a dose of it can fit into a large suitcase. So to, to our chance of controlling it, of, of controlling the supply of it is, uh, is zero. We're not gonna control the supply of it. And um, any attempt by the legislature to keep on saying that, you know, we need harsher penalties, we need, it's just the same old drug war BS. That doesn't work. And, and um, so we're, we're gonna go through this whole fentanyl thing, just like we did the opioid, you know, the, the um, manufacturing uh, of opioids and the, the distribution of them through pharmacies and pharmaceutical companies uh, legally. Now we're gonna go through this whole thing with fentanyl uh, and uh, being completely out of control. Well, we need to step back and look at why are people doing this? Why are, uh, what's, what's the solution? What's the, the solution to get people off of this drug? And, um, and I, I, I think you put all your, your smart people together to figure that out. Leave the peace officers outside the room and, and try to figure out as if there are no laws. We, we, there are no laws against this. Nobody's gonna go to jail for it. How do we control it? And if you looked at it that way, I, I think, your, the medical community and the mental health community might come up with some ideas that we haven't thought of. Uh, and uh, that would be my hope anyway. I'm sure you're super popular at the cocktail parties with the uh, police, with the big, big wig police officers in the state. Well, it, you know, for some reason, um, you know, we keep on raising our hands that, that, that we can, you know, give us, give us this job, give us this job. We can, we can do this. We can't do it. And you just got to be honest about it. You know, we failed. We failed repeatedly. And we tried hard. I tried really hard. I, I arrested so many people. And, and, and you know, we did everything we can to, 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 to stop all this. You know, I mean, people have been shot over. People have been sentenced to jail, wasted their whole life in jail over smuggling pot. And now you can buy it anywhere you want to in Colorado. So, I mean, you could, before it was legalized, you could buy it anywhere you want to in Colorado. So it, it, it just it, it just failed completely. And, and to not learn from that is, a, is really a mistake. Well, my son is six years old, and we've already had numerous conversations about drugs, including alcohol. In fact, we have a relative who almost died from a drunk driver smashing into his vehicle so that we've had some serious conversations about that already we'll see how that pans out in the long run hope that we can instill enough common sense over the years i know that some people are they're just more prone to addictive behaviors of very of all kinds whether it's gambling or drugs or whatever so do you see drug addiction as more of a disease or more of a choice well i i i think it is it is both to a degree. I mean, people, we have to admit there's a certain number of people that they take one drink of alcohol 
the rest of their life, they're an alcoholic. And the rest of their life, they have to have alcohol every single day. Or they go through some kind of re meaningful recovery system or they reach rock bottom and and and, and develop a, a support system that that gets them off of that. But there are certain people like that. I, I know, you know, kids in in, in uh and when I was growing up in, in Los Angeles, that they, they took one puff of a cigarette and the rest of their life they smoked cigarettes constantly. And they just, there's people like that. And same thing goes with every drug you can think of. There's some people that can take, um, uh, you know, oxycodone, you know, because they've been injured and, and it's a painkiller. And, and at the end of the, when the prescription runs out and they're well again, or, or the injuries over with, uh, they never want to take it again. And there's other people, they take one of those things and they are addicted for the rest of their life. And for some reason, we placed a moral value on that. Well, that guy is an oxy freak. And I, so therefore he's morally bad. Well, I, I, I don't think that's the case. I think they, there's just certain people that, that their brain, their chemicals in their brain are wired that uh, that they're going to be in a they're going to get be an addict, and, and um, you need to get those people into the, the proper treatment programs to to help them. And um, I, I, I and I think as society we have to just realize X number of people are going to be that way. And now what do we do about it? How do we help those people or, or if we or make a decision that we don't want to help them? You know, whatever it is, we need to admit that, that that's going to happen to a certain number of people and no drug is perfect and no drug is good and no drug is bad because some people are just flat going to be addicted to it. And I think the same thing goes with certain eating disorders, you know, people just can't stop eating you know, and they're just wired that way. And, and they, they take a, a lot of effort to, to, to help them. So we, we need to set aside that. And Hey, 10% of these people are just going to be a problem. Now, before we even introduce the drug into society, if it's a legal drug, how are we going to deal with the people that are going to get addicted to this particular substance? And I, I think we, we need to, look at, at the front end of that um, before we introduce new legal drugs. And when we're dealing with illegal drugs, we, we need to admit that too, that a certain number of people are just flat going to be um, addicted to, to, that, uh, to that substance. You know, that being said, you know, I'm running a couple homicide investigations right now on fentanyl overdoses. You know, I, um, if, if you go around distributing this stuff and, and you, you you know that it's uh, dangerous to people and can kill them, you you have to accept that responsibility that, that you promoted a substance that was uh, deadly. And uh, it, it's even in libertarian thought, you're responsible for doing those kinds of things. You, you just can't go and, and, and introduce people to substances that will kill them without accepting responsibility for that, that uh, homicide. Well, the way I've looked at it, and I'm pretty hardcore libertarian on this issue, but on anything, if you're 
purposely or negligently distributing stuff that's inherently dangerous, like the user doesn't know what they're getting. And that's true with a lot of drugs these days. I've heard stories of people, they think they're snorting cocaine and they're snorting fentanyl and then they die because of the fentanyl is so potent and their bodies aren't, can't handle it. You're absolutely right. So the way I've looked at it is, you know, there's a role for prosecution of people who intentionally or negligently distribute inherently harmful stuff. Like if you sold alcohol, you know, like if you sold beer and it just contains some poison in it or something like that, you would be criminally responsible for that. Beer is perfectly legal, but not not stuff that's of unknown pure of unknown uh, toxicity has poisons in it or unknown dosage. So yeah, I, I I see some role. I mean, I it's a much bigger debate as to why that happens, but um, yeah, I mean, as a lot as you know, when you're working in in that side of it of enforcing the laws, yeah, there's that's rights violating acti- behavior to give somebody a drug when they don't even know. It's fentanyl, but they don't even know there's fentanyl in it. And then they, then they result in um, dying or being severely hurt. So another, another thing you've wrote about, you've written about quite a bit is the civil liberties aspect of the drug war and how it tends to corrupt many police departments or at least certain parts of police departments. It puts people needlessly at risk, harms minorities. So one thing we also worked a little bit together on a few some years ago was reforming the asset forfeiture system. But of course, that's still just a huge deal where certain police departments just take people's stuff just because they have it. And then they never charge them with a crime, but they keep the stuff or it's really hard to get that stuff back. So you have groups like the Institute for Justice, who's always, seems like every every week or every other week, they're suing some government agency or another because they took somebody's stuff and they have no evidence that the person committed any crime. Then there's no knock rate raids and these rapid knock raids where you know it's the middle of the night you might knock and say police but re- realistically are people inside going to know you're the police you know when you're rousing them out of their out of their sleep um there's problems with pretextual stops you know oh my god he has a broken taillight or whatever we're going to stop him and search his car for drugs so how do you how do you see those issues of as having evolved you know over the last couple decades or so and i guess we can add in here this is not strictly related to the drug war, but I want to eventually lead into how you think policing has responded to the police killings of George Floyd and Elijah McClain in, here in Colorado and other people and how you see the civil liberties aspects of police departments playing out these days. Well, to start with, uh, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, the, the drug forfeiture law was um was particularly abused in those days the the, um, peacekeeping agencies uh were allowed to keep the money that they um if they see some so um or or assets so they could sell the assets and then that would go to that particular agency to buy police equipment or fund drug units, et cetera. And that, that, was, that was really poor. That, that shouldn't have happened. Uh, you, you can't have the police going out and getting the asset for their own, own benefit. And we did that on, on a number of occasions. I think one time we got several hundred thousand dollars and an asset seizure funds off a drug case. 
and we we you know we built a whole new modern communication system with that money in those days that 300,000 200,000 a lot of money um so that just encouraged us to to do more you know to try to go find more assets to seize and so finally we we changed that law was changed and it should have been that that uh that that money is uh, governed by a system that that doesn't necessarily go back to the agency, but but can be used for a variety of different things, or even helping with the general budget. Much like any other money that we get, you know, it's not money that you put in. You know, the shouldn't go to the law enforcement agency without proper, I'm call it civilian review. Uh, by uh, elected officials, by, by your funding boards, the, the uh, commissioners or city councils or state legislature, et cetera. So that's kind of eliminated that, that desire by, by peacekeeping agencies to go out there and seize property and, and tie it back to, uh, to, um, to the crime. Now, obviously, if it's completely ill-gotten gains, it probably shouldn't be returned to the person who uh, basically stole the money or used uh, illegal dealing in drugs to obtain that money. It it shouldn't be sent given back to them. But it, uh, if they can prove that it is the gains of that, it should be given to the to the public funding boards to decide what happens to it. Um. You know, overall, certainly the the drug war uh, is pretty clear. That if you were addicted to drugs and, and you were a white wealthy person, uh, that your addiction would be handled in one way. You'd go to Betty Flor Ford Clinic, which was named after Betty Ford, who the president's wife, who had a drug problem. And, and but if you were poor, white, or Black or Hispanic, uh, you, you would be treated completely different in, in the whole system. And um, you know, I, I saw that even here in San Miguel County, uh, which is a very white community. But uh, you know, if if you were, you know, a, a wealthy white woman would probably be the best thing. And got addicted to drugs and got caught with drugs, you, you would definitely have a completely different system dealing with you than you would if, if you were um, of a either ethnic minority or you were poor. I think that's changed. I, I don't think it's quite the same. Uh, uh, judges in our system now realize, uh, have accepted that, that, um, that, that uh, drug use is, uh, or addiction is a problem that needs to be dealt with in different ways. And so that, that is not as bad as it used to be. I, I'm not saying that there's still the remnants of that. There's still people serving time from the 70s and 80s right, that, that got caught up in the crack or, or even smuggling marijuana. So it, it is, um, it's, still, it's still there. And it, it, it's a, a problem that we need to watch all, all the time. I guess that's a hopeful note in no noticing how things have actually improved over the last couple, three decades. 
And I guess I'll say thank you for standing up when it wasn't necessarily easy for you to do so and pointing out some of these problems. Because, you know, I was nobody. I was just some activist nobody cared about. But you were, you know, you were an elected official. And uh, so, you know, that took, that took a certain amount of um, courage to come forward and speak out like that. Well, there are there were a lot of people that agreed with me. They just they, they were afraid to come out and, and say it. People, you know, the, the whole police industry is was afraid, and, and uh, you know everything was built around around drug being a drug warrior. That was the that was the best assignment you could get, and and you know it's it's um, yeah, a lot of people understood it. They they knew you couldn't stop it. You know, they say they're going to stop it, but it never goes away, right? So in Colorado, obviously, semi-legal marijuana has not been <laughs> always perfect or great. It's had its own problems. But on net, how do you think that's worked out for Colorado? I, I, I think the, uh, the biggest problem with it is, is the um, competition from the illegal marijuana market. And, and I, I think that's a, that's a problem that we still need to deal with. And, and uh, you know, peacekeepers need, need to come to grips with that because it's kind of like setting up your own distillery, right? And you're, you're going you're gonna to manufacture your own alcohol and sell it to all your friends and neighbors and, and, and run a bar out of your garage. You can't do that. There's laws that, that regulate the manufacture and taxation of, of alcohol, as there should be, because it, it's an impact on, on society. Alcoholism is a big impact. You mentioned your friend who was, was injured by the, uh, by the drunk driver. You know, we, we spend a lot of time trying to stop people from drinking and driving, and, and certainly the taxes on alcohol should be used to do that. And so it, alcohol is regulated. It's a regulated industry. And if I decide to set up a bar in my garage uh, and sell drinks there, all the other licensed liquor establishments would immediately call the police and, and tell them, hey, Bill's got this illegal still and he's, he's serving drinks in his garage without a license and without paying taxes. Well, the same thing hasn't evolved with the illegal marijuana dealers and the legal ones. The, uh, they, the legal ones are still going like, we're upset about that. We wish it wasn't happening, but we're not calling the police and, and ratting out these people that are, are growing their own marijuana. But uh, I think that that's, that's going to evolve. I think we're going to have uh, marijuana industry mature and become more like the alcohol industry. It's going where everything is taxed and everything is, is regulated. It's pretty regulated right now. If you if you look at the, the legal marijuana, it's pretty amazing what, what the the uh, marijuana enforcement uh, agency can do in the state of Colorado. You know, every single plant is barcoded from from the moment it it, it springs up to the moment it's harvested to the moment it's sold in a store, and um, it's all it's all controlled by a by um you know, the same system that they use to control food products in the market. So uh, they do keep a, keep a pretty tight leash on, on the legal marijuana market. And I think that that's probably the future 
throughout the nation is uh, the kind of model that we have. So the rationale, to switch gears, the rationale for body cameras is that it holds police accountable when they're doing the wrong thing and it protects police. I should, I should say peace officers more often. It's just so ingrained when they're doing the right thing. So how do you, do you think that that's, do you think body cameras have lived up to the promise of them? It's an incredible Orwellian program to fit all the officers with body cameras. So everywhere they contact citizens, they're, they're on camera and they, um, and anybody, it's public record, anybody can go and get that. Uh, a lot of times we dealing with people that at the worst day of their life uh, and they're in crisis or maybe a family member's in crisis and they're inviting us into their homes to try to deal with this crisis. And, um, and, and we're videotaping it all and preserving it as evidence, once again, both as for criminal wrongdoing charges and, and for the protection of the police officer who, who uh, is uh, feared that, that they're gonna be accused of using excessive force or, or or something along those lines, doing something illegal. I, I resisted it for a while because I, I didn't like that intrusion to the, into our citizens' lives. But uh, the more and more pressure I got from my um, deputies to um, so that they could prove that they were being decent to people. They wanted to be able to prove that. They said, people don't believe us anymore. Uh, it used to be if the policeman said something that was that was, you know, the, the truth of the matter, and you know, it was probably wrong. There's probably you know, definitely people that took advantage of that, officers that took advantage of that. Uh, and so now with the the body camera, it, it does it. It more often than not uh, absolves the officer of uh, wrongdoing, and that's the most common use uh, of the camera that I've seen. Uh, the second one is is obviously for criminal charges to prove what, what the person did uh, at, at that contact. But still, I I I have concerns about it. I, I'm I'm very reluctant. Uh, I would be very reluctant to invite an officer into my house with his body camera and, and uh, or her body camera. It's just it, it's um I know those are running and and I, I just. Uh, I, I don't want my life filmed. Thank you very much. I call the officers for a reason. I, I, I don't expect to have my household filmed. And, and um, I think that's an intrusion. And you know, certainly in George Orwell's novels, they had cameras in every room in, in the house, right? So the government could look at, at everything that's going on in the house in uh, the book uh, 1984, I believe it was. And um, that's kind of like it is in North Korea. And to a degree, that's the way it is in China. You know, I, I haven't been to China, but I've heard that in Shanghai or one of the big cities, if you jaywalk across the street, there's a camera that automatically um, takes your photograph through uh, um, digital imaging, recognizes you, uh, finds you, writes you a citation, and takes the fine out of your bank account until you uh, before you get across the street. Now th that's a pretty controlled system, and uh, but you know they go like, well, nobody's nobody's jaywalking, so it must be worth it. 
you know, I, I, you know, I, I question that. I, I question whether these these cameras are are, uh, are not a, a complete and by violation of our privacy. And I, I think it's going to get worse no matter what, even if the government doesn't do it or there's regulations against uh, peacekeeping agencies or police agencies to do that, um, uh, the private sector is going to do it because they, they want to know, they want to recognize you, they want to know what you're uh, spending uh, uh, money on. And, and uh, apparently there's going to be this way in the future where, where you... Um, as you're walking down the street, they recognize who you are. They look at your Amazon account. They know what you've bought in the past, and the ads change uh, as, as you walk down the street to 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 entice you to go into their store because they know what you've bought in the past. So it's those kinds of things that are, are going to occur in the private sector, which once again is going to be an incredible violation of our privacy. If, it's not occurring already. So, well, I think it's worth thinking about the downsides as you discuss. I do like the attitude of the officers who want to be on record because it's like, I'm doing the right thing and I want to be able to prove I'm doing the right thing. At least I, I appreciate that attitude. That's why we went to them early. It's not required yet, but it, you know, we, we went to them early and we have you know, just the, the volume of, 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 um, of video that we have now is astronomical i mean it's just it's just unbelievable because we're videotaping damn near everything we do and you know i i just flat refuse to on, on some occasions it's wrong but I, i'm an old school guy but you know people come into the you know technically i should be filming you ari right now okay anytime somebody even if we don't contact them but they contact us we have to be filming filming so it just you're covered because i'm recording so yeah i'm not i i don't have it and um i and our people come into my office they want to talk to me they want to talk to me about some very personal things i'm not gonna videotape them they're not gonna come in and see me anymore they're not they're they're gonna stop asking sheriffs and, and officers for for advice on, on how to solve a very personal problem that's and, interesting. And, and that's a problem. Yeah, I mean, I wonder, it seems like there should at least be some common sense exceptions along the lines of what you suggested. So there, I don't, there, really, I don't there, really know the law that well. To be There honest. are some, but it, you know, everybody's afraid now because we're also now held personally reliable, liable for our actions. And, and this is nothing that really ticks me off. And talk about George Floyd, terrible, terrible person murdered George, George Floyd. There's no doubt about it. And there's absolutely zero excuse for that. It wasn't like they were in a big fight anymore and something bad happens. I could see that happening. You're in a bad fight with somebody and and and, and while that's happening, uh, the person dies. And, and uh, um, that any that could happen to any officer. But um, you know, in, in this particular case, uh, there's just absolutely, the, the person was under control or certainly should have been to, to any, trained officers should have been completely and totally under control. There's no reason to murder them. Absolutely none whatsoever. Well, that... uh, and, and so, but at the same time, it's caused this huge change. And, and I fear there's going to be a backlash from that. But, uh, and the change has been a large number of officers leaving 
the the uh, the job hard to recruit new young officers that might have the right attitude but they don't they don't want to uh to get into the business uh making officers personally responsible for their actions well it's really interesting to me we you know the legislature is not held personally responsible for passing the law that, that officers are sent out to enforce the the judges aren't held personally responsible for pass, passing uh, the the uh, the judgment on these people nobody is nobody is held responsible except for the police officer and you look at some of these some of these terrible cases that occurred and i'm sorry i, I should know these people's right that name right off the um, on the top of my head but um getting old uh but there's one poor fellow that was selling cigarettes in New York City, uh, loose cigarettes. So you know, rather than, you know, you, you could buy a cigarette for a dollar from the guy. And, and a lot of people like that because they're, they don't want to smoke a whole pack. They don't want to have a whole, a whole pack. They want to just buy one cigarette from the guy on the sidewalk. You know, and this is, is a classic American story, right? What do you do? You drive up to New Hampshire where cigarettes are dirt cheap, no taxes on them or whatever. You load up your car full of cigarettes, drive them back to New York and sell them on the street uh, for a buck a piece. And, and that's your livelihood. And uh, one of the worst things you can do is, is get in between a man and his livelihood, you know. And when somebody's trying trying to make make some some money that way, and what 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 happens in New York? The the New York City is losing all this tax money because they they are are selling loose cigarettes, untaxed cigarettes. So what do they do? They they go to the to the NYPD and say, you guys have to form a special unit. It goes nothing around, but stops people from doing what the people want. And and, uh, and so they go and do that. And I know police officers, they much rather drink coffee and have pie at a diner than go out and arrest and struggle and fight with some big guy who is out there selling loose cigarettes. But that's their job. They're told to do that. But who's held responsible for it? It's a legislature that passed the tax on, on taxes on cigarettes that's so outrageous people want to want to go and find some other way to buy them. Is it because of our system says you have to buy twenty cigarettes? You can't buy just one. It, it, did it, did the, the officer make those decisions that caused this business to flourish? No, he he. They're just told to go and enforce the law. Well, if we held the legislature responsible, or you went out and used deadly force to enforce the law that we we um, passed. And they don't believe that's going to happen. But the, the reality is every time they pass a law, every single time that gives the police the right to use deadly force to uphold that law. Because even if it's a minor law, they, they go and, and try to arrest the person for doing it, the person resists, they're allowed to use whatever force necessary to stop that resistance, and eventually somebody's going to get hurt and die from it. So they have to accept that responsibility for every law they pass. You know, someone may die because we passed this law and they've decided to resist it. And you know, we 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 see that in uh, seatbelt laws. You know, where okay, for their own safety, 
we are going to require everybody to wear seatbelts. Well, some people are just going to flat refuse to wear seatbelts. And the officer stops them and they go like, no, I'm not going to put it on and I'm going to drive down the road because you have no right to tell me I have to wear my seatbelt. And there's just there's just some people who are who are like that. And, and so what does the officer have to do then? The officer has to drag them through the window of the car to get them out of the car so they're stopped. Stop this terrible criminal behavior of driving without the seatbelt. That's the position you put the officer in. And the legislatures need to understand that with every law and they should put in there, officers have the right to use whatever force necessary to enforce this law or officers should not. They should just tell people they should wear their seatbelt. And otherwise uh, they should be held responsible and personally liable for the laws they pass if peace officers are going to be held personal liable as well. That kind of sounds reasonable to me. So we'll bracket the uh, deeper discussion to that to later, but that's, that's interesting to see it from your point of view, because, you know, I don't talk to, <laughs> I, 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 I hear often more often from the reformists. So I hear their side of the, of the story um, and, and the benefits of some of these programs. So that's interesting. You know, during COVID, I, I got some calls from city council members and, Commissioner going like, how come you're not enforcing the ban on tourism in Tyrant? And people aren't supposed to come here that don't live here. This is a the law we passed for COVID, emergency ordinance. People who don't live here shouldn't come here. And I said, Oh, is that right? Well, who did you see? Well, there's a group of Texans walking down the street. I said, so Texans, you know. Like white Texans, I assume. Yes, white Texans walking down the street. Okay, well, what if they're what if they were what if they were black people? Should I go and tell those people that they're not wanted in Telluride? They have to leave Telluride? Should I go and tell the homeless guy that he's got to leave Telluride because he doesn't live here? He doesn't have a big house to live in? Is that what I'm supposed to do? And and they wanted me to use the kind of force that they were talking about because they didn't like a particular group that was visiting Telluride, and and I, I'm not I'm not gonna do that, and, I, and you you can't do that, and so there's there's laws that people pass all the time, and they assume that that the uh, that the sheriff has to enforce them, and and I tell them I don't I I don't have to enforce any law, I think I have tremendous discretion, and, and and determining uh, what limited resources I have and how they're used in, in, in the the application of, of of the law. What do people need to know about your job? I think it's an honorable job. I think peacekeeping is an honorable job. If you have your head on right, and and uh, you got to go every day, every, every single day that, that you go to work, you got to got to make sure your 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 head's working working right and and uh, I've enjoyed it. it it's been a great career for me and I would urge uh, other young people to to look at look at it as a good and honorable profession uh, I, I I think we do need to stress a few things we need to stress peacekeeping uh, over law enforcement we, we need to have fewer laws not more laws we could go go back to start with ten, and, and I I think I think uh, we start all over again. We, we might have a 
have more respect for the law if there were fewer and and, and there are laws that that almost all of us could agree upon um and, and that they weren't a lot of them are, are socioeconomic laws uh, and that that are hard to understand like everybody should have insurance when they drive the car without a doubt you know i mean you should be insured but wouldn't it be great to have a product that if you didn't have it, you would go to jail? You know, wouldn't that be a great, I mean, I, I would I would love to invest in that company that had a product. that If you didn't have it, you, you're going to end up in the jail. Well, you know, that's, that's what we do with people that don't insure their cars, right? They end up in jail for driving around without insured cars. So would that product be more expensive or less expensive? If you had to go to jail, you ended up in jail if you had that product. If you didn't have it, so of course it would, the expense would go up because gotta gotta have it, right? And, and um, so when you you look at traffic enforcement, it does fall predominantly on people that that don't have money, right? You know, they got the crappy car, they got the car that with a cracked windshield, they got the car with the tail light doesn't work, and all that's bad. You need to have brake lights at work. You need to have a windshield you can see through. You need to have insurance on your car. You need all those kinds of things. But um, you know, percentage-wise, um, you know, the guy with the brand new Land Rover, he's got insurance, and he, you know, he's got he doesn't get stopped by the police. He, he didn't have cracked windshield or you know, no tail lights, etc. He's got a brand new one. So. I, I concern, uh, my concern is that rather than really promoting public safety in, in a lot of our traffic laws, we're, we're not concentrating on the real things we should, drunk driving, speeding, reckless driving, those kinds of things are important and we need to concentrate on, on enforcing those, uh, that behavior. How important is just the step of getting the right people into the force and not, op- you know, Having it's a problem when you don't when you have officers leaving and not enough people applying. You're, what do you do then? But how important is it just to get the keep out the wrong people, the people who are gonna you know go rough people up just because they enjoy it, and get in the right people who have the attitude of, hey, I'm trying to make people safe here, <laughs> keep people out of trouble, keep people from getting hurt. So is that is that the key step? Is the hiring step or? Is it more of can you train them once you get them, or how do you, how do you make it work? It, it, it's quite difficult, and, and uh, you know, as uh, one of the Peel's principles that I mentioned earlier was, uh, you know, uh, ask their neighbors about them. You know, size up the officers by asking their neighbors about them and what, what kind of person they are, and and, that, and that's that's really true. You really need to do that kind of background. You have to go to their neighbor's house and ask them. What, what is this fellow really like when when he's 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 uh, or she is is off duty and and that's he recognized that very early on and so it really the background investigation of making certain that these people don't have some kind of abusive background but it's really really difficult to screen those out as we've seen uh, throughout our um, you know on the news all the time you see there are officers that are. Uh, lose it. And, and I've lost it before too. I mean, I've had bad days, days uh, also, but it, you know, to, to try to change the uh, people that come into the business with, 
predetermined uh, ideas about about race and, and about their authority, those kinds of things is is uh, is extremely difficult to weed out. And then on top of that, you have the um, the uh, police academy, which um, institutionalizes uh, officers' behavior, and it's really hard for these these institutions to change quickly. Um, uh, police work and is a conservative business. Uh, we we tend to look at uh, things that have worked in the past, and we're resistant to change. Um, and um, so you see that that uh, happening in the when when the person becomes institutionalized into the the agency, what they're rewarded for, and it's formalized in the police academy, and then they get into the field training officer. And it's it's a little bit more um, less formalized, and then eventually you end up in the culture itself, and it, it becomes um, more uh, informal. But uh, you you want to be respected and honored by your peers, and and these are the people that you you depend your safety depends on when you're out there in the street, and and so you, you want to be like them, and, and and you want them to like you. And so it's it, all that's very difficult and it's hard to change. And in certain agencies, it's worse than in others. But there's a few things that I think is really true. First off, the police force tends to reflect the community they serve. You have a smart community, a lot of educated people. Uh, people are decent, uh, basically decent and friendly with each other. You'll find the same thing occurs in their police force. And likewise, if you have a, uh, a nasty town uh, with uh, nasty people, people are either bigoted or, or, or have uh, been forced into some kind of situation where, where uh, they, they, they don't like each other or foreigners much or people from the outside, you're going to have a police force that, that represents those, those values as well. So uh, that's a that's something that I think is universal um, in in the business. And then the police academies really need to be be um, carefully analyzed. When I was started in the business, you didn't go to the police academy for a year. That obviously has problems, but you know they just basically put you out in the street and let you are you going to make it or not, you know and but they got a chance to look at that person and see if they they really liked them before they went into that institutional setting. But unfortunately, they, then they learn by themselves and that there might be some uh, problems there. I went to a police academy graduation uh, over the weekend. One of my officers was was uh, graduating, and uh, it's a good academy. You know, it's a rural academy. And I think they really try to teach the right the right things, but I noticed in every graduation I've been to a lot of them that there's always an award, different awards given, and one of the awards was for the best shooter, a person who learned to be the best shooter in in the class, and um, you know when that award was presented to to him. Good going, guy. You know, yo, you did a great job. Oh, look at that. Slap him on the back. Oh, you're so so great. You're the best shooter. 
And then they had another award for the person who was the best driver. And that's usually done on kind of a high speed track and, and uh, it, it's, it's pursuit driving, but it's also defensive driving to a degree. And the same thing, hey, he was the best, uh, you're the best driver and that's so great you did that. And then um, and it was, was the lady that I sponsored to go to the, uh, one of my deputies to the, to the academy uh, received the um, highest academic award for being the best student. Everybody went, hey, good work. You know, and that was, that was all she got. It was like, well, half, half ass clap. Uh, and um, so it, it just, it, I, I look at that and go like, you know, that there's, there's something wrong with this, this picture. Uh, another academy had, had uh, they made t-shirts for the, during the class to work out in. And uh, the t-shirt said uh, something along the lines of, uh, poke them in the eye and do something else. Meaning and it was for their arrest control. And this guy had taught a particular technique um, that when you really got in a bad fight, you should have this particular maneuver. And the class took to it and thinking it was funny to, to, to say, have a t-shirt, shoot him in the head, poke him in the eye or something like that. And the academy director at the time, who's not there anymore, didn't realize how terrible that would be if, you know, newspaper or public came in and took photographs of the, of the cadets working out with that t-shirt on. Academies have some issues and, and we need to watch them carefully and um, make sure they're teaching the right thing. What, one thing that I did when I was in the police academy, and this is at the State Patrol Academy, it, it, the, everybody in the state used to go to the same academy except for like Denver and Arvada. Everybody in the 70s went to uh, Camp George West where the state police, the State Patrol Academy is. And we had a lot of state patrol um, instructors and uh but we had one section the academy was only five weeks long then this now it's, uh, 20 weeks long or something but it was five weeks long and we had um a, a troop of uh, actors come in and um, play act uh either victims not suspects but victims people that had had a had something to report, people that were complaining about something. And it was a real eye-opener on uh, them playing these victims. And you were told you had to solve this particular problem without using your legal authority. Pretend you're not an officer, but you had to go solve the problem that this particular actor or actress had and solve it without using police authority. That was, a that was a really good exercise. That was really good learning process to go like, all right, how do I do it just uh, as Bill? Just if, if I was Bill, how would I solve this particular problem? It might be just a parking problem. This guy's so mad at me. I, 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 he's parked behind my car, so I can't get out. 
I'm going to be late for work uh, and I can't find the guy. How do I, how, how do you resolve this problem? Do you tow away the car? No, you can't do that because you're not a police officer. So what do, what do you do to get this person, uh, get this neighborhood dispute in this apartment building resolved without using your authority? And, and that's good exercise. They don't teach that anymore. Hmm. Yeah, it seems like yeah. they need an award for the person who can best diffuse a mental health crisis or something. Yeah, exactly. It's exactly what we need. That person is the person we need to be clapping, slapping on the back and going like, you solved this particular problem. And we should spend a long time dealing with that. It's interesting also, we, we do it in a very short period of time. We, we recruit people, we put them in the academy, we get them out on, F, on the field training program and we expect them to know what they're doing relatively shortly. And um, I have a friend who uh, is a police officer in Germany and he uh, decided at his young age, 18, he wanted to go in the police. So they went to college. They have a policeman's college that he goes to for four years before he can be allowed to go out and work as a police officer. So he's, he's there in there for four long years and they are fit. They're in good shape. They know arrest control. They know how to defuse situations. They, they, they spend a lot of money on their uh, peace officers before they're even on, on, on the street. And um, whereas we, we're not, we don't spend anything, nothing like that, a fraction, small, small fraction of that in our training. And then in, in our um, reoccurring training, you know, it, it's um, it's doubtful how, how an eight-hour class. I, I'm scheduled for one next week. We have to have to do a, it's a anti-bias training. It's required by the state now. There's, there's certain curriculum required by the state to be recertified in every year. And it's probably a good thing to discuss, but I, I really question whether in eight hours you can change some kind of fundamental you know, internal thing in somebody to say, oh, I, I'm, thank God I'm no longer biased after an eight hour training class. Right? I mean, that's, that's pretty incredible thought in my mind. But maybe you can do it in a four year program. If you're going, like, this is one of our goals, you're gonna come out of here with, with, with no bias about gender, about sexual orientation, about race, about, you know, occupation, etc. Uh, I'm not saying that the police in Germany are perfect. I have no idea what they're like, but uh, this guy had a tremendous tra training program that, you know, we don't, we don't even come close to. You mentioned a story about Don Corum to me. I thought you could relate that, how you came to know Don Corum. I'm Paul Haining. The young man in Placerville was our uh, only Vietnam War casualty. And Placerville, those who don't know, obviously, are, are just a little tiny town and maybe 100 people. Not truly even a town, just a place in our county. And uh, I, um, I lived there for many years. And uh, one day I was taking uh, one of my kids down. I'd never been to the Placerville Cemetery, but I, I saw Paul Haining's grave in there. And it said... Um, you know, uh, his uh, date of death 
1969 or 1970 in the Republic of Vietnam. And I thought, oh, geez, here's this kid who came from Blasterville and he's kind of here in this forgotten cemetery in this uh, forgotten grave. His parents lived in Placerville and they had moved on. When he was in Vietnam, he called home one day and and in in, in uh, Placerville they didn't have a they only had party lines in those days. Even when I lived there, they only had party lines to, uh, and uh, his parents didn't answer. So the, and the neighbor picked up the phone and uh, he said, I, I, I'm I'm uh, I'm uh, going to Vietnam tomorrow and he's trying to get home. His parents and they never was able to connect with that, um, with his parents. But he, he went to Vietnam and was killed. And um, so uh, I contacted Don and they're redoing the little bridge in Placerville. And, and, the, and it was like, um, it's a hundred, hundred yards bridge. It goes over Leopard Creek. And, uh, but they were, they were expanding the bridge. And I, I asked him, I said, it would be great if we could get this little bridge named after private Paul Haney, and um, uh, so he, he said, "Yeah, I'll I'll forward that bill," and so he did, and, and uh, we have we have that bridge name there. He was he came to the ceremony, so uh, um, that was that was good. That was our only Vietnam uh, War veteran or uh, lost Vietnam War veteran. So I, I I think Corum is now a state senator. Yes, he was. A, I think he was a representative then. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. And now he's running in a primary season for U.S. Congress. We'll see how that works out for him. Yeah, I, I, I like Don. I, I think he's he's a very reasonable guy and a guy who, who uh, definitely works across the aisle and and, uh, and uh, seems like a human being to me. You know, a guy who's very approachable. So I hear you went to the Nile recently. What was I that did. About? What was that about? Well, I... I, I uh, a friend of mine about over a year ago contacted me and said, you know, I, I, I've been reading about these sailboats that sail up the Nile. And uh, I, I was trying to get a group together to go on that. So a, a group of us, uh, I think there were 24 of us all together. Uh, and together with uh, six children, a couple of my grandchildren, uh, a couple of uh, my youngest son and his girlfriend and my uh, oldest daughter and, and her uh, husband and, and her couple of kids and uh, a whole group of people that we, we know um, uh, rented this, chartered this sailboat. And it's, it's like a sailboat that looks like something out of Cleopatra, no motor uh, and, and, you, and you have an Egyptian crew, which they're just great people. And we're, we were able to sail up the Nile. And, and, and I, I didn't know much about the Nile, but uh, are the Egyptian um, uh, history, but uh, I always wanted to see the pyramids and, and the, the different ruins. And it was amazing to be able to see it from uh, a boat on the Nile, slow moving boat on the Nile, because we could pull over anywhere and, um, and tie up and uh, go walk into the, to the ruins where that might not be so popular with the, with the tourists. So you can just see them uh, there. And uh, it, it, was, it was very interesting. The interesting part about the Nile is it flows north uh, into the Mediterranean from Lake Victoria, like, I don't know, 6,000 kilometers or something, um, clear through uh, Africa uh, and then through Egypt. But it flows north 
And then the prevailing winds from the Mediterranean are south. And that's what really allowed the culture to flourish so well. First, they had the fertile valley of the Nile, which is really only about a mile on either side of the Nile, very thin strip. And, and um, they also had this uh, method of, of sailing up and down the river because you could sail with the prevailing winds southbound on the river against the current and then turn around and come down um, with the current. And that enabled the Egyptians to, to um, do amazing architectural feats by um, tying all these boats together and putting great columns on them that weighed tons upon tons and moving them around and building these incredible um, buildings that, that are, are, are so well preserved to this day just because of the climate and the, some of them have been covered in sand for years, et cetera. So uh, it was a, a fascinating trip. The Egyptian people were great. They, uh, uh, a lot of uh, very moving experiences. We were, we were in the largest mosque in, in Cairo one day and the imam came out just before the, the uh, prayers. I think they're at 11, you know, they're four, five times a day, I guess. And, and uh, uh, he came out and, and was uh, uh, really enjoyed the children that were with us. And um, then he said, I, I, I'll say the morning prayers just for you alone in this huge, huge um, uh, uh, Islamic mosque. And, and uh, it was very moving uh, you know, to hear him call out the morning prayers uh, without any microphone or anything, just just him reading the Quran uh, on the uh, from the mosque. So yeah, there are a lot of interesting experiences like that. I really enjoyed the Egyptian people there. They were so great to us. And, and uh, it was a it was a really fun trip. I would urge anybody who has a chance to to do that to, to definitely uh, get a chance to go to Egypt. Back home, what's your favorite thing about living in Telluride? Yeah, I, I think it's a really healthy community. You know, yeah, I, I, I enjoy the smallness of it. I, I enjoy being able, I live right in the town of Telluride. And, and so I enjoy being able to walk where, wherever I want to go or ride a bicycle where I want to go. Unfortunately, my office, I have to drive to my office several miles out of town. But um, I, I enjoy being in a smaller community, although the, the community changes a lot. There's a lot of new people all the time, but that also has made it a very unique place to live. Uh, at one point, we were the eighth highest educated county in the nation. There are a lot of, of uh, people that were dropping out of society that were highly educated or had made a lot of money and have, had moved to Telluride. And that makes it for a very interesting and dynamic community. We have great schools here. We have uh, uh, great recreational opportunities. Uh, I, I, it's really easy to say stay fit, and and I think it, it, as a long police career as mine is, it's probably going to be 50 years. Um, I'm going to. Uh, uh, I think that's important. It's important to stay fit uh, throughout your career and uh, um, uh, exercise regularly. As beautiful, you can go skiing, mountain biking. I, I'm a I really enjoy mountain biking, so it's it's something I can do right outside my uh, my door, and um, it's it doesn't involve a commute and all that kind of stuff. So it's it's really nice to be able to live in in a um, in a small town. It was great for the kids growing up there too, and and I have a couple of grandchildren growing up there now, 
and uh, so it, it's um it, it's a, a great place to uh great healthy community and, and lifestyle there in telluride what's next on your agenda either personally or at the sheriff's office um our latest thing is uh, i i have a um a friend of mine who uh started out as a deputy sheriff in in, uh, in florida and and uh, was extreme changed into doing some private business and now is um a um really wealthy man and, and owns uh, almost his own airline i mean he's he's been very successful and he is um he has decided to uh he told me last year, Bill, I'm going to buy you a helicopter. He has a big house here in, in Tyra. And he says, I think San Miguel County needs a helicopter, so I'm going to buy you a helicopter. And I thought that was kind of, I, I thought he was just having a moment, you know. And, and I said, that, that's, that's a great offer. Thank you. And um, then I had a friend uh, who was uh, at an Airbus show, Airbus helicopter maker. And uh, they were talking, and he, he's from Montrose, and he said, Oh, Montrose, well, that's near Telluride. I, I know we're building their helicopter right now. And uh, so my friend wasn't just joking. And, and so now we have, that's coming later on this month. And I'm really, uh, I'm excited about that because uh, once again, one of our duties is search and rescue. And we're gonna have um, that platform to conduct our missions. Uh, it's a high performance helicopter, it lands, Land, the same model landed on the top of Everest. So it, it'll be the, uh, our 14,000 peaks will be low altitude for, for this particular uh, aircraft. And I'm looking forward to be able to, to do our uh, search and rescue mission with um, a, a lot better uh, timeline than, than we, we currently have. And um, also the same thing goes with the uh, wildfire suppression, be able to to um, see those wildfires quickly, hopefully when they're small still, and, and get the proper crews in there to take care of that. So uh, that, that's a um, something I, I hope is successful, um, and uh, um, so that's that's one of the things I'm working at. Um, I'm also uh, involved in an assessment program for the sheriff's office right now. We hired a um, police expert uh, to come in and assess our sheriff's office and and to see what uh, what we can do better uh, make sure that we're up to date in the in our procedures and in our uh, our equipment and, and our our uh, all the new changes that have gone on in in uh, uh, peacekeeping make sure that that we're staying up to date on that I'm looking forward to his report he's interviewing everybody in uh, in the uh, agency, and all of our employees, and uh, and several people in other agencies, and and the um, uh, community at large. So it it'll be an interesting report that um, I think every agency should have done every once in a while. Somebody from the outside come in, a, a real professional uh, person who, who's um, known to assess problem. Agencies. I don't think we're a problem agency, but but if we have that kind of um, overview, I, I think it's good for someone, especially someone like me who's been in office for so long. Uh, I I don't want to have blinders on, 
and, and not see that uh, there's something that uh, we could be doing better. Well, good for you. That sounds great. Mm. Well, I think that's all I had. So I'll thank you for your service. I'll wish you good luck in the upcoming election. And thanks a lot for coming on to the podcast. Hey, uh, Ari, it's my pleasure. It's always fun. And I hope to, to see you in person someday. Come come over to Telluride or maybe next time I'm down there. And, and uh, you should have plugged the book too. You know I mean? Maybe we'll get a sale or two uh, after all these years. I'm sure it's still available. Drug War Addiction on Amazon. I'm sure you can find it there. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. All right, Ari, it was a real pleasure. Have a good day. Hey, you too. Thanks a lot. This has been the Self and Society podcast. For more, please see Self and Society and Substack. Thank you.